The scripture lesson today is taken from Acts 17. This is part of the story of the uh, spread of Christianity and the development of the early church. This is when the Apostle Paul uh, travels to Athens um, and an account of what he says there and what happens. We're going to be leaving out some of the verses, but uh, we'll start at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and other devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God, and perhaps grope for God and find God, though indeed he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, we'll hear you about this again. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, as we gather to hear your word sung and spoken and prayed, place us under that word that what I speak may become your word and may both illumine and inspire us in this congregation for living in this world you have created and redeemed. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. 
In our 75th year, Westminster Presbyterian Church is and remains what is called a mainline Protestant congregation. The term mainline refers to a cluster of denominations that were a significant, if not dominant, part of American Christianity through the first three quarters of the 20th century. Mainline denominations include Episcopal, Methodist, Presbyterian, Reformed, Disciples of Christ, Lutheran, American Baptist, and Congregationalist churches. But as most of you know, the aging process has not been kind to these denominations. Our own has shrunk over the past 50 years from 4.2 million members to 1.6, a 60% drop. In the past seven years alone, mainline Christianity has declined from representing 18% of the American population to 15%. And in addition, in recent years, as most of you know, one in four Americans now classify themselves as having no religious affiliation. Given these statistics, it is legitimate to ask, is there a significant future for mainline Christianity in America? And more personally, do we at Westminster have a future as a mainline church that we can count on? I want to address both of these questions in today's sermon. And I want to begin my response by sharing three experiences that I have had spread across a good number of years in the churches that I have served. On 9-11, I was serving a downtown congregation in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. We had a strong tradition of hosting services for the city on civic occasions. So a few hours after the planes struck, we decided to have a service of prayer and music that night. In addition, we hosted a citywide service on Friday at noon, after which I was able to come home, given the time distance difference, turn on the television and watch the service held here at the National Cathedral. On Sunday, our church held a service of readings and music to commemorate the losses, and then the following Sunday, I preached a sermon to try to put that awful event into some kind of theological perspective. Thus, like many churches of all kinds across the country, we had four services in 12 days around the events of 9-11, and we were a thousand miles away. A week or so later, I was called by a local newspaper reporter who was interviewing various ministers on how they responded to 9-11, what their churches did. What did you take away from 9-11, the reporter asked me. I thought for a minute, and then I said, despite the horror of what happened, I am grateful to be a minister in a tradition in which we have both the theology and the liturgy to speak to such an event. And I am grateful. My answer would be the same today. 
to be able to think through a national event like 9-11 in the context of our faith, to be able to articulate our thoughts, then to be able to worship in light of it. This is what I find in the Reformed tradition in the mainline church in Presbyterianism. It is in this expression of Christianity I find the tools, the permission, and the spiritual power to speak to a national event, a national tragedy, from the context of our faith. A few years later, when the movie The Crashing of the, pa- the Passion of the Christ was released, as many of you will recall, it took the nation by storm. Most leaders of Catholic and evangelical traditions endorsed the movie and urged their members to attend. Evangelicals, out of a belief that the depiction of the death of Christ in all its pain and gruesomeness would help lead people to embrace Christian faith, and Catholics out of a long-standing tradition and emphasis on Christ's suffering and death. But not untypical of mainline clergy, I had reservations about the movie. I knew that I needed to see it in order to be able to speak about it, and I rarely go to movies, so I did go and see it. I read a wide range of people who by then were commenting on the movie and providing analysis. And then I made about a 40-minute presentation to my congregation in our fellowship hall after the worship service one Sunday. Over 175 people showed up in fellowship hall for that presentation. Some from our church, many from the community. The bottom line of what I shared was this. I said, while there's value in certain aspects of the film, other aspects distort the way the Gospels present the death of Christ. And then I added, if you do not feel compelled to see this movie, as your pastor, I'm giving you permission to skip it and not feel guilty. Afterward, a member of the church came up to me and said, this is exactly why we need a church downtown, to be able to speak to events like this. The third example I want to provide is occurring right here and now at Westminster. For several years, those of us on the staff who try to discern the pastoral care needs of the church and community have had a growing awareness of the number of people with whom we interact who have some form of emotional challenge or mental illness in their lives, in their friends, in their family. Amy Upton, our Interim Director of Adult Education, has brought a passion and an insight and a dogged determination to find resources for this topic. As many of you know, in October we've had an evening event and then three successive Sunday mornings on the broad topic of mental illness in our society. Each has been led by a different expert from the National Institutes of Mental Health, part of NIH. 
these programs have attracted between 60 and 160 people each time. On a couple of Sundays, the Haverkamp room upstairs has been absolutely jammed. A little less than half of the people attending are people who are coming from the community. People are showing up to a religious-looking building to explore this most personal subject that is so challenging and so stigmatizing for many. They are drawn to Westminster because we have shown the theological openness to address this topic and to affirm science and medicine and technology as gifts of God. And we have provided a welcoming space to which people can turn to search for answers, to search for a sense of community, to search for a glimpse of the face or back of God in a situation in which such such glimpses are often overshadowed by the darkest of clouds. My friends, I deeply believe that there is a future for churches in our country like Westminster. Churches that seek to articulate the Christian faith to the multiple aspects of our culture with clarity, with seriousness, with beauty, with openness, with compassion, with passion, and with humor. I believe with every fiber of my being that we do have a theology and a liturgy, an understanding of the mind and a disposition of the heart to search for, to find, to live out Christian faith in the world in which we are living after 9-11, after the social revolution and cultural revolution of the 1960s, and after the personal triumphs and tragedies that occur in our lives, many of which are unspeakable and therefore difficult to share. Furthermore, I believe that as long as we strive to articulate the faith with ears and eyes that are open to the world in which we live, as long as we commit to worship well within that world, we will be here at 2701 Cameron Mills making our contribution to the vast entity known as the Worldwide Church of Jesus Christ. We are small, but one, we are but one small manifestation of the body of Christ that exists across the world. But we have a role to play in that body. And that role is not going to go away. In the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, a few years after the resurrection of Christ, the Apostle Paul has traveled to Athens, the capital and the most important city in ancient Greece. He has gone there to bear witness to the gospel of Christ. Paul arrives in Athens as a foreigner, a Jew from present-day Turkey. Yet in the capital of Greece, Paul speaks not only to Jews, 
but also to devout people who are not Jewish, and to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and to those whom he happens to encounter. He speaks every day, sometimes in the synagogue, sometimes in the marketplace, sometimes in both. At times, Paul argues. At times, he debates. At times, he praises the citizens of Athens for the signs of their religious commitment and searching, even though their commitments are different than his. As different as Paul is from the Athenians, he affirms in their midst that the God to whom he bears witness gives to all mortals life and breath and all things, and that God has made all nations to inhabit the earth, including their nation, in all of its glory, in all of its learning, in all of its achievement. Then Paul states, subtly and beautifully, the three pillars of the Christian faith that he has come to represent in their midst. God's incarnation in the one unique person of Jesus Christ, who Paul does not mention until the very end of his sermon, and even when he mentions Christ, he does not mention him by name. That's how subtle and respectful he's being in this context. And then Paul issues Christ's call to everyone to turn to God. That word, repent. And then he ends with God's raising of Christ from the dead. Incarnation, repentance, resurrection. This is the substance of Paul's message to the Athenians. When they hear Paul, Luke tells us that some of them scoff. Some of them say, I think we want to hear more about this. And some of them believe, embrace the faith, and join with Paul's movement that very day. In 2009, I conducted the funeral for Marge Smith, who was a longtime member of Westminster who had died at Goodwin House a week before at age 88. Margaret Rice Smith grew up on the campus of Union Theological Seminary in Richmond, where her father, who had passed away just a few months after her death, was a well-known professor of Bible. Her brother, Dr. Sherrod Rice, became a longtime leader in their denomination, and I had heard of him even as I was a kid growing up in the church. As a young woman, Marge met and married Russell Smith, who had been born in the Congo to parents who were also Presbyterian missionaries in that country. On both sides of their family, Russell and Marge Smith were steeped in mainline Protestantism in the Presbyterian church 
and in Westminster at its finest. In meeting with the grown children to plan the service, one of the sons gave me a copy of an editorial that had appeared in the New York Times in 1918 as World War I was, was winding down. This was a few years before Marge's birth. He suggested that I read it at the service because she had clipped it out and it so embodied what she believed about the Christian faith. So I read portions of it. Religion may lack many things, the editorial said, but it must be real. It must be a power touching and ennobling life in all of its manifold aspects. The unpardonable sin in religion is unreality. This is one of the large lessons of the World War, which of course had just been completed. Conventional religion, the editorial said, may have sufficed for conventional times, but the war has taught us that conventional is worse than useless in times like these. The editorial then went on to say, God is not an abstraction throned above the stars, but a living reality in the lives of hard-pressed people. God is closer than breathing and nearer than the hands and feet. When we have a religion that is real, when we have a faith that has the power to touch and ennoble human life in all of its aspects, when we bear witness to God who is closer than breathing and nearer than the hands and the feet, some will scoff. And some will say, I want to come back and hear more. And some will sign up and embrace faith because of its reality. I don't know about you, but that kind of faith is plenty to get me up in the morning and it's plenty to bring me here Sunday after Sunday. The need for that kind of faith is not going to go away. Amen.